So every day for the last two months, my daughter Lydia has asked me the same question over and over again. How many more days until Christmas? Day after day, night after night, before she went to bed, as she got up, Daddy, how many days do we have left? Thankfully, Nicole Dorton, our children's director, got us an advent calendar, those little chains, so she could start counting it by herself, so we wouldn't have to answer so many days. And this is what Christmas is for, for a child, or really for any of us. There's so much buildup, so much anticipation. We've been practicing this with Advent, the waiting and waiting and waiting. And then Christmas morning finally gets here. All that we've been waiting for, all that we've been hoping for, and by mid-afternoon, we've already decided to move on. We're already ready for the next thing on the calendar. But church, this morning, as the world moves on from Christmas, as the world begins to start a new year, our call is to hang on to it for a little bit longer. You see, in the Christian calendar, Christmas is not just a day, it's actually a season. It's a season of 12 days, which is where we get the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. It's a season of 12 days signifying the time between when Jesus was first born and the wise men visit him. And as one author puts it, if Advent is a season for our waiting, Christmas is a season for our wonder. And that's what we must do this morning. We must wonder again at the birth of Christ. We've, we've already anticipated so much. Now we must celebrate it. We need to spend some time this morning in wonder of our Savior. So how do you bring Christmas into the new year? Three points from the passage. The problem of wonder, the practice of wonder, and we're going to see the person of wonder. And I'll walk through those one by one. First this morning, the problem of wonder. And as we've read over the last couple of weeks, Luke 2, 1 through 14, shows us that Jesus has just been born. And now in Luke 2, 15, we see the response to his birth. Look at verse 15 again. What is the response to Christmas? When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing, this thing meaning the birth that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And this is the main verse right here. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. What's the response to the Christmas story? To wonder, to marvel, to be astonished, to be absolutely amazed. And in that word wonder, we have one of Luke's favorite words throughout the gospel. One scholar even calls the gospel of Luke the gospel of amazement. Because throughout the gospel of Luke, Luke can't help but use that word time and time again when it comes to Jesus. In fact, there are actually five different Greek words that's used for amazement. And Luke uses all of them. He can't help himself. He's overcome with this Jesus, so he has to exhaust the language of amazement just to begin to describe who he is. And in verse 18, Luke points out again that this was the response, not just of one, not just of some, but it's the response of all. All who heard wondered. And we already know this, don't we? We know from our different readings of the Christmas story, we know from our different pageants we've been to, we know from the different programs, we know that all who heard about Jesus and his birth were in wonder. From the angels in heaven, to Joseph and Mary here on earth, to the shepherds out in the field, even to the wicked King Herod 
who was so amazed at Jesus' coming that he became paranoid to the point of wiping out every boy under two in Bethlehem. Every single response to the Christmas story in Scripture is wonder. But here's the problem for us this morning. That's not usually our response, is it? Yes, we usually enjoy the Christmas story. Yes, we like hearing about it. But we're not staggered by it anymore. You see, when we hear the Christmas story year after year, we kind of just assume it. We're no longer amazed at God coming to us in His Son. We just think this is the norm. Of course, we have the birth of Jesus. It's Christmas. Of course, God has come. We do this every year. But listen to me this morning. There is perhaps nothing more dangerous to you in the new year than losing your wonder for Jesus. There's nothing more dangerous for you that in following Jesus, you just become familiar with him. Where he now just becomes assumed. He's just a part of things. And we're no longer amazed. This idea of assuming Jesus versus being amazed by Jesus is wonderfully told in the children's book, the best Christmas pageant ever. You might have read it uh, with your kids when you were growing up. It's a, it's a book by Barbara Robinson, and it's the story of a church's annual Christmas pageant that gets taken over by the worst kids in town, the Herdmans. And here's how the Herdmans are described. It's a, it's a family of six brothers and sisters, and here's what uh, they're described as. The Herdmans are the worst kids in the history of the world. They lied and stole and smoked cigars, even the girls, and hit little kids and cussed their teachers and took the name of the Lord in vain. Well, those worst kids in the history of the world somehow find themselves in church and somehow find themselves in the starring role of that year's Christmas pageant. There's just one problem. They've never heard the Christmas story before. You see, unlike the town... They didn't grow up in church. They're not familiar with this. So at the first rehearsal, they hear the Christmas story for the first time, and they are absolutely shocked. They are stunned that there's no room in the inn, saying, my goodness, not even room for baby Jesus? They are stunned that Joseph didn't try to get the innkeeper fired. They are stunned that the wise men can't come up with better presents than oil for this baby. And at at the end, they want someone to play King Herod just so they can beat him up. (laughs) You see what's happening? Everyone in town has become bored by the Christmas play, but not the Herdmans. You see, they've never heard the story, and they're absolutely amazed by it. On the night of the play, everyone in town shows up, and here's what the narrator writes. Everyone had been waiting all this time for the Hermans to do something unexpected. And sure enough, that was what happened. During the final song, Silent Night, Imogene Herman was looking at baby Jesus, and she was crying. In the candlelight, her face was all shiny with tears, and she didn't even bother to wipe them away. She just sat there, awful old Imogene, in her crooked veil, crying and crying and crying, It was as if she had just caught on to the idea of God and the wonder of Christmas. Do you remember what it was like? Do you remember what it was like to just get caught on the idea of God 
and the wonder of what Christmas might mean, that God has come to be with you. You see, the Herbmans are amazed at the coming of Jesus, but the town has grown to assume it. I have to ask, what about you? As we enter into 2023, are you still amazed by Jesus this morning? In hearing his name and listening to him, does it still cause you wonder? Are you staggered by the fact that God would come here to be with you? If our biggest danger this year is losing our wonder for Jesus, then we must figure out how to recover it. How do you become amazed by Jesus? Maybe for the first time this morning, or maybe for the thousandth time. We've seen the problem of wonder, now let's look at the second thing. What is the practice of wonder? The right response to Christmas might start with wonder, but, but it doesn't end there. And we see that in the contrast Luke makes between the wondering of the crowds and the treasuring of Mary in verse 18 and 19. Look back at verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Luke makes a contrast with Mary in verse 19. The crowds are wondering, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And Luke places that but there to get our attentions, to see how Mary is responding as the right response to Christmas. You see, as the shepherds run around talking about the good news, Mary is sitting there in silence, quietly treasuring her son, which isn't just the son of Mary, it's the son of God. And Luke uses two words here to help us learn what it means to practice wonder. He tells us Mary treasured and Mary pondered. And it doesn't come through as strong in the English, but when you put those two words together in their original language, it means that she's mulling it over. She's taking it all in, trying to put the pieces together. There's that popular song, Mary, Did You Know? We can oftentimes make fun of that. Of course, Mary knew. But this passage is telling us she didn't exactly know everything. She knew some things, but she's trying to understand. She's trying to treasure. She's trying to keep putting it all together. What does it mean that the Son of God has just been born? What Luke is describing here is the practice of contemplation. Not contemplation like the modern world does it. Not contemplation like New Age spirituality. Contemplation in trying to savor what she's seeing trying to enjoy it, trying to take a step back and rest in all that has just been done to her. Maybe this example will help you understand what contemplation is. Say it's a really cold night like last week was, and you're outside and you have a fire going with family or friends. In order to get warm at that fire, you can't just keep rushing past it ever so often, just taking quick hits by the fire. You're going to have to sit down next to it. You're going to have to spend some time there beside it. You can't just keep rushing past the fire. You're going to have to sit down to get warm. But what contemplation is, what Mary is doing is an even step further than that. It's not just sitting down to get warm. It's after a while, after you've gotten warm, you start to enjoy all that fire means to you. You start to take in the life that comes from that fire, the fellowship it brings with other people. You're not just sitting there you're enjoying it. And this is why Mary is highlighted here. Mary doesn't rush past Christmas. She treasures it. She ponders it in the deepest parts of her being. 
And this is the exact same language we have from David in Psalm 27, our Old Testament reading. Did you notice how strange it was, Psalm 27, that after David talks about the enemies that are around him, the evildoers beside him, that he has an army encamping against him, and then in Psalm 27, 4, he says, I only ask for one thing. I ought to have about 25 things to ask for. And of course, David doesn't mean he just asked for one thing, but there's, there's one thing that's more important than the others. And what was that? It was not to be saved from his enemies. It was to see the Lord. Psalm 27, 4. One thing that I've asked of the Lord to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's what contemplation means. To look inside the temple because that's where the Lord's presence is found. So what's so important about what David is asking? What's so important for us this morning about what Mary is doing? to practice wonder, to treasure, to ponder. Why is that so important? Because what you behold in this life is what you will become. What you end up looking at, your life will end up following. And this idea of awe and wonder and contemplation is being studied a lot right now by psychologists, by scientists. All these different people are trying to figure out this weird science of wonder. And you know who they're going to study this? Astronauts. Out of all the people they've chosen to study is astronauts, and the reason they study astronauts is because of what they call the overview effect. I don't know if you've heard of this, but you see something strange happens to these astronauts when they go into space. There's a very specific moment that stands out for every single one of them. It is that moment when they get up far enough into space that they can look back and they begin to see the Earth in its entirety. And there's something about that view, that perspective of seeing the beauty of the earth just hanging there in the blackness of space that changes everything for them. They've labeled it the overview effect because the overview of the earth and the vastness of space. Here's what Edgar Mitchell, who was on Apollo 14, here's what he said about his experience. And you can look at, there's so many testimonies about this. He says, when I look back at the earth, something happened to me up there. I developed an instant global consciousness, a care for people. You see the beauty and the fragility of the earth, and I have to do something about it. You see, in that view for them, all the struggles that people deal with, all the strife, all those things kind of start fading into the background when they see the greater picture of the whole earth. And if looking upon the earth from space changes a person that deeply, what happens when you look upon the creator of that earth? And that's exactly what we have in the manger on Christmas. Paul tells us in our assurance of pardon, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, that's not just a baby in the manger. That's God in the manger. The glory of God has come to us in the face of Jesus Christ. And when we look upon him, it starts to change everything else. Mary knew this. So while everyone else is running around, she sits there treasuring him, pondering it, taking it into her heart. If there's nothing more dangerous for us than to lose our wonder for Jesus, then we must start practicing wonder by fixing our eyes on our Savior, treasuring Him, taking it all in. So let's take a deep breath. 
Let's try to slow everything down. Let's try to rid our mind of the things, the distractions, the things of the future. And let's ponder him right now. We've seen the problem of wonder. We've seen the practice of wonder. Let's finish by looking at the person of wonder. Verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This sweet little story about Mary treasuring and the shepherds worshiping just took a really strange turn, didn't it? We went from Mary sitting there, we went from the wonder, now to circumcision. Why does Luke do this? Why does Luke finish this section here? Well, again, he does not want us to miss the person of Jesus. Verse 21, Luke sums up the person of Jesus for us in one verse. Luke tells us that this Jesus, he is fully God. His name was given by his parent, not by his parents, but by the angels before he's even conceived in the womb. His name is Jesus, which means God saves. And how is God going to save? Well, this baby is not just fully God, but he's also fully man. And Luke just begins, he gives us a taste of how far his fully manness will go, that he was even circumcised on the eighth day. And that's the reason we can't move on from Christmas. We can't really ever move on from Christmas. That's the reason Jesus alone is worthy of all our worship. He is fully God and he is fully man. And he alone can reconcile God and man because he alone is God and man. This is why the early church in the first 500 years spent so much time defending the mystery of the incarnation. The fact that Jesus was not just a man, but he was fully God. And he wasn't just fully God, but he was fully man. Others couldn't imagine a God who would become flesh. They thought that is so beneath God to take on human flesh. But the early church said, God is not embarrassed by our humanity. He's not embarrassed by these things. In fact, he enters them. Here's how one of the early church fathers summed it up. And this is so important. St. Gregory in the 4th century said this about the incarnation. What is not assumed by Jesus cannot be healed by Jesus. What is not assumed in the incarnation will not be healed. You see, we have sinned in body and in soul. And in order for us to be healed, God must take on both body and soul. And that's exactly what he does, even to the point of being circumcised on the eighth day. You see, the circumcision of Jesus is just a foretaste of all that Jesus has come to do. He assumes the mess of our humanity to redeem humanity, body and soul, even by his own blood. So in the, in, in the incarnation, our God assumes everything about us, except for one thing. He assumes everything but our sin. He is perfectly sinless until we get to the cross. On the cross, the unthinkable happens. Jesus, being perfectly sin, sinless, takes on our sin on our behalf, in his body and in his soul, takes on the full wrath of God and all the punishment of mankind. It's poured out on him, and even our sin there on the cross gets assumed by our Savior. Like St. Gregory said, what isn't assumed isn't healed, and Christmas tells us God has come to assume it all.
John Swinton is an ordained minister in the United Kingdom. He's, a, he's a, a theological professor over there. But he's an interesting character. You see, before becoming a pastor and a professor, his specialty was medicine, specifically mental illness as a registered nurse. He spent most of his career caring for people with mental illness, the marginalized with dementia or schizophrenia or bipolar. Those diseases that most of society usually cast away, he wanted to care for. And do you know in his care for them what he found to be most healing for people with dementia or schizophrenia or mental illness? Friendship. You see, he found out that when people are treated not as a diagnosis but as a person, it starts to heal them. He shares one example of a woman struggling in the advanced stages of dementia And as she's reflecting back on her life, here's what she said to her caretaker who practiced this friendship for her. Here's what she said. Most days, I don't know where I am. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I've just come from. But I'm not afraid. Because I can see all around me, and I can't see a lot, but I can see love. And your face is that picture of love for me. What did she need most in her sufferings with dementia? She needed a friend. She needed someone to stoop down to her level to show her that she is loved by giving her a face day after day after day. That's exactly what you need too. As you enter into this new year, I don't know how you're coming into it. I know a lot of you, I know your struggles, I know your triumphs, but I don't know exactly how you're entering into this new year. And you might be saying, I don't know what just happened to me. I don't know where I just came from. I don't know where I'm going. But listen to me this morning. Because of of God's incarnation, you really do have his face. There's nothing that you will go through this next year that God is not willing to meet you in. That's why he's come. He's come to bear it all. So as a preacher, I really don't have many resolutions for you this year. But I do have a Redeemer for you. And what a Redeemer he is. That's why Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And this year, I hope you can too. Let me pray. Father, thank you for coming to us. Thank you for the amazement that you have shown your glory through the face of Jesus Christ. And I pray that burst through our hearts right now. That we would know your glory because of your Son. And as you lead us to this table, may you show us again the presence of you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.